Well, good morning. Uh, good to be here. I didn't know if I'd make it in time. I got stuck behind somebody who was driving the speed limit. Um, so, you know, but we made it with a little extra time to spare. So, um, well, hey, if you remember in this series on foundations, uh, if you remember, Jason started this series uh, four or five weeks ago. <clears throat> he talked about uh, a phone call he received. And I think uh, it was a phone call from a, a phone booth in Kentucky, as I recall. And you'll hear more about that in the next couple of weeks. He'll, he'll bring some uh, conclusion to that story. But I want to start uh, this morning with a uh, story of my own about a phone call uh, that I received many years ago. And uh, so here's kind of the setup for that. Just do a quick setup, and then I'll tell you about the call. So um, it was actually 31 years ago this past summer, and I was far, far far from the Lord and on purpose, wanted nothing to do with God or the things of God. And several years, many years before that, I'd taken all my Bibles and my books, and I think I've shared this before, and teaching tapes and Bibles, study material, everything, anything to do with Christianity. And I put them on books and I, in boxes. I put them on the curb and the, uh, the uh, trash guy took them away and put them in a landfill probably somewhere. Uh, so that's kind of where I was. I uh, was married, but I had a girlfriend. Diane and I were separated, and I was, we were going to divorce, and I was just going to go live my life in blissful happiness, you know, by, by however I define that. Um, and Diane had gone away to Teen Challenge, and so I was back home uh, to take care of our three-year-old daughter, and uh, they went to church, and so I thought, well, that's a pretty good thing for three-year-olds to do, right? So I guess, you know, I'm the parent here now, so I'll take her to church. Uh, in the process of taking her to church, I met these people who actually believe that Jesus is alive, and that when they gathered like this, any time they gathered, that he was present with them. It wasn't like theoretical, it was like they believed that, and they acted like that. And these people would call uh, or ask me after church if I would come over, um, uh, if, if my daughter and I would want to come over and, and have lunch or the kids could play or whatever. And I always uh, declined. I always said, hey, thanks, you know, that night won't work. I'm busy or, or uh, maybe another time or whatever. I totally lied. Uh, so I was a liar, but I was a polite liar. Um, you know, I was very courteous about my lying. Um, and then one night somebody called me. This is the phone call. It's actually two calls within just a few minutes. Somebody called me at home uh, and invited us over, and I said what I said, thank you, uh, appreciate that, we can't make it that night. And as soon as I hung the phone up, um, I got another call. But this call didn't come through the phone, this call came from the Holy Spirit, and uh, I didn't know it was the Holy Spirit at the time, uh, but here's the, the thought that dropped into my head. As soon as I hung that phone up, and I remember it word for word, Bob, you're 34 years old, and you're a pud. That was it. And as soon as I heard that, uh, now normally you hear that, that's not a good thing. Uh, when I heard that, uh, when I sensed that, uh, that resonated. I thought, I can't argue with that. Um, and it went on. Uh, the, the next thoughts were, any time through most of your life, any time you've had opportunity to be in relationship, real relationships with people, you've backed away. Anytime somebody approached you and there might be something real, something authentic about a connection with people, you've had an excuse. And uh, there's a lot more to that story that I won't 
won't go on to today, but that was, that was real. And that was, I didn't know it at the time, but that was the very beginning of a massive collision of realities. My reality colliding with God's reality. And that's really what today's message is about. Today's question is really, what do you do when your reality collides with God's reality? And now you have to make some decisions. Well, you see worlds uh, all over the place colliding uh, throughout Scripture. You see a lot of individuals uh, for whom um, <clears throat> realities collided. One of those is Peter. We're not really going to look at him today, but um, there's just a few occasions when Peter's reality collided with God's, and it created a massive shift in his belief and in his actions and in his ministry. And so you could probably think of many more. There, there's a lot of them. We're actually not going to look at really a specific individual today, but we're going to look at a group of people who had a massive collision uh, in Scripture. And there's parts of it that the Bible tells us, and there's one big key part that it never tells us in black and white. But as soon as you see it, you'll go, yep, I see it. I see it now. And that's the nation of Israel had a massive collision of realities. They experienced a collision of worlds too. And so I'm going to look at some well-known events. We're not going to read all these scriptures because everything I'm going to tell you is pretty familiar territory for you. If you've read the Bible at all, you've read these stories, you know them. And so we don't want to take time for that. Uh, but I will show you some highlights. So what I want to do is give you some, some truths, some realities as background that the nation of Israel experienced. And I want to set these up somewhat like an attorney uh, setting up a legal case, okay? And so here are some of the facts. And as uh, Kevin Bacon says in A Few Good Men, these are the facts and they are indisputable, right? And so here are the facts. The first fact is this. God promised Abraham and his descendants that they would become a great nation and that through them the entire world would be blessed. That's a fact. But here's my first observation. When I read that, I see that knowing what happens later on. And the first reality that, that I see is this, is that you can possess God's promises and his truth and still be a slave. It's possible to possess God's promises, God's truth, and have some revelation from God, but still live in slavery. And that's exactly what happened with, uh, or in bondage, and that's exactly what happened to the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, they lived that way for the next 430 years. This is not a little blip on the radar screen. For 430 years, they w wondered and asked the questions, who are we? What are we all about? Why is this happening to us? Who are these people? What's out there? if we could even fathom you know, ever being out there on the other side of slavery. When you live like that, you begin to form certain beliefs. And these beliefs begin to be hardwired uh, inside of you, and they become deeply, deeply entrenched. Now remember that word entrenched, because we're going to come back to that toward the end of this message. So beliefs, paradigms become deeply, deeply uh, entrenched, and they create a lens through which you see life, you see people, you see relationships, you see opportunities, you see challenges, you see God, you see all kinds of things. And most of us don't think about that lens. Yeah, we just kind of live life for the most part. Uh, we don't usually stop and think about uh, the way that we see things or the lenses through which we see things. Um, we just assume that everyone kind of believes the way I do. Or if you don't, I don't know what's wrong with you because I've clearly got it all together, right? 
And so we have these lenses. And likewise with Israel, there's a prevailing belief. And I can't give you a chapter and a verse for these beliefs because it doesn't exist. There's not a chapter and verse. But again, as we uh, build this legal case, you'll see it. You'll see it in just a few minutes, okay? And when it does happen, when the, the, this reality does come, it, it's a massive collision, massive. Next part of the legal case is this. Exodus chapter 12 uh, is uh, God giving Moses the directions for the Passover. Moses giving those directions to the people. It's a familiar passage. And here we see some of the things that the Israelites took out of bondage with them. They took these things that are specifically mentioned in Scripture, took some things that are probably that are not mentioned in Scripture, but you could reasonably infer they took some other things with them, their utensils, their cooking utensils, and their tools and things of that nature. But these are the things that it mentions. Uh, and again, it leaves something out that's not it mentioned, but it becomes important later on. Well, it's the third layer of our legal case here that we want to set up. We're going to fast forward just 11 days to Numbers chapter 13. Now, Numbers chapter 13 is when Moses picks uh, 12 uh, people, one from each tribe, and they're going to go spy out the land of promise. And Moses tells them, now, go spy this land out and see, before we take possession, see if this land flows with milk and honey. What's it like? What are the, you know, what's the terrain like? What are the people like? How about over here and over here? Just, just give me a, come back and give us an assessment of this whole thing, okay? And um, so here's what they see. They come back with this report. Man, there's some good stuff. There's grapes. There's lots of fruit there. The fruit is so big, in fact, the grapes are so massive that we had to sling them over a pole and carry the pole between our sh on our shoulders. That's pretty good fruit. Their conclusion, the land does flow with milk and honey. They also see some other things that, that aren't so great, but they're real. Their eyes work. They see things. There's large people there. The cities are fortified. There's giants there. Everywhere we looked, everywhere we went, they had different, different parts of the land covered with their own people. Okay, so those, there's things we like, there's things we'd prefer not to have, but we see them there. Now, here's the conclusion that they made. Go to that next slide. Yeah, the conclusion they came up with is we can't attack because those people are way too strong. The land devours the people. They're giants, and we're grasshoppers. And the way they know that is you can kind of infer, as you, if you read the Scripture, we asked them what they thought of us, and they agreed, yeah, you're pretty much grasshoppers. And so that's what they uh, concluded, and it was factual to them that we don't belong here. And here is where you see this massive collision of realities. Our 430 years of slavery and bondage collided with freedom, and the two uh, really are incompatible. And so how are we going to blend these together? It's a set of beliefs they had that were 430 years in the making, beliefs that were so pervasive that they overruled the promises of God in their life. Remember, we just looked at what, what God promised Abram. Your family will be a great nation. Through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. They knew that. But when they faced this, these challenges, it, nope, it overrode God's promises. Here's another interesting thing. There's a part of Scripture where, where uh, when Moses is selecting the leader the, or the people to go spy out the land, it says twice in the same verse, it says he specifically chose leaders. Every one of those spies he chose was a leader of the nation of Israel. 
and the leaders come back and say, yeah, we don't belong there. You know you're in trouble when that's the leadership. That, that's not good news. But it gets a little bit better. But we'll get there. So they wandered around. For 40 years they wandered. And like I said, that's a massive collision of worlds. It's really like this. It's like trying to drive through Denver, and I got this map of London. And I cannot figure out where the heck I am on this map. And I cannot figure where the heck this thing is that I want to get to. Because when I look at the map, everything's different. I mean, they use different sides of the road, and they sit on the wrong side of the car, right? And I'm looking at these uh, signposts in Denver, and it's measuring everything in miles, or my speed in miles per hour. And this is all using kilometers, and the buildings and the waypoints are different. And I just, I don't know where I'm going. I don't even know where I am. I can't navigate my way through Denver because I've got the wrong map. And that is how many of us try to live the Christian life with the wrong map. And so I'm trying to live uh, in my Christian life in the land of freedom and peace and prosperity and forgiveness and grace. But I've got all this crap I've drug with me, inadvertently probably, from the land of slavery, from my previous 430 years, right? Okay, so I find out there's a huge incongruency uh, in these two lives. And so I make some assumptions. My first assumption is that... Uh, the problem is the land of promise, the land of freedom, the Christian life out there. It's not attainable. I can't do it. It's, it's for like super Christians, and that's not me. I'm just an ordinary Christian. By the way, there's no such thing. Well, there are ordinary Christians. They're not super Christians. And so there's something wrong with the land of promise, okay? Maybe the problem is the people. It's the giants. Doggone it, you know what? If, they just, if the giants just weren't there, I'd be able to achieve or I'd be able to live in freedom or in peace or this addiction that, that I've been laboring with, uh, this stronghold that's got me by the throat all the time, this attitude, this belief, this action, uh, this paradigm. If it just weren't for those giants, I could be free. Or maybe the problem is um, not those things. Maybe the problem is the gospel, the gospel doesn't work. That's a conclusion I drew many, many years before, uh, before that phone call that I described to you. The gospel doesn't work. It works for some people, I guess, who God loves, but it doesn't work for me, so I'm just going to bag the whole thing, throw all the books on the curb, and forget, screw all this. I'm just going to do whatever I want with whoever I want. That's not a good idea. And so we assume the problem is all those things. One of my favorite Bible teachers I like to listen to from time to time is a British guy by the name of Malcolm Smith. And Malcolm has a real interesting, sometimes quirky way of explaining things. But he says this. Uh, he says that when you and I come to faith in Christ, when we surrender to Jesus, when he becomes our Savior, then our spirit is regenerated. Our spirit is that part of us that connects to God. Our spirit is regenerated. We like to use the word saved. We're saved. He says that's, that's an awesome day. The problem many of us have is we've got the same way of thinking and believing and drawing conclusions, and that's what needs to get, get saved. He says you need to get your brain saved. Yeah. In other words, I need to get uh, all my beliefs uh, my actions, my deepest motivations, my responses, 
they need to come into alignment with my new reality in Christ because the minute I say yes to Jesus, now many of those things, most of those things are outdated. These are now maps of London, and now I live in Denver. Not that Denver's the promised land, but, you know. Things are outdated. Things are outdated. Get your brain saved. So let me pause right here, and I just want to throw a big caveat over this whole message because I know this will happen because it's happened before. Um, so tell you this about farmers or about the reality of farming. Um, every farmer understands the laws of sowing and reaping, right? And th they understand that if I do certain things, then certain other things will follow. And you know that that applies to farmers who know and they love the Lord and they serve him with all their heart. And it applies to farmers who could give a rip. They had no time for God. They got no time for the things of God. They, that's all a bunch of hogwash for weak people. If they plant and tend to their crops, they'll grow too and they, they'll get a, a great harvest. So the laws of God apply whether we know him or not, whether we acknowledge him or not, because God's laws are transferable and universal, okay? The truth is, you can actually implement God's truths without knowing God. Any business owner understands that, that if I've had a customer who walks through the door and they've got a, a bone to pick with me about a service or a product that they purchased and they're unhappy about it, they just know, they probably can't quote it to you, but inherently, what Proverbs says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. So rather than me lashing out at this customer and blaming them, I'm going to go easy with them and I'm going to you know, try to take care of their need and you know, fix things for them, make them a happy customer so they come back and they tell their friends. And that shop owner, that business owner, maybe has no time for the things of God whatsoever, never even entered their mind. But that truth applies because God's truth applies whether we know him, whether we surrender to him or not. So here's the caveat. If you don't know him, and you haven't surrendered to him, and you don't surrender to him, all this becomes positive thinking. All this becomes self-help. And so please don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, I'm not talking about positive thinking. I mean, hey, please do think positively rather than negatively, but I'm not talking about that. The stakes are much larger than positive thinking. So here's the difference, and I'm not you know, uh, uh, trying to micro-divide these words up. But here's the difference. Positive thinking is based on me acquiring what I want so things go better for me. And yeah, if it benefits you, that's cool too. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm not talking about positive thinking. I'm talking about positive planting. Planting in the field of my soul, my mind and my will and emotions, what I want to grow that not only benefits me, but it overflows because of the laws of the harvest. You reap more than you plant, uh, and it benefits other people, and other people are, are blessed, and Jesus becomes famous, okay? So not positive uh, thinking, but positive planting. So I'm not talking about, you know, uh, having a better life, I'm talking about surrendering your life. Massive difference between me having a good life, which I'm all for, by the way, but much larger than that, much more significant than that, is me having a surrendered life. Just, Lord, have your way. On my best day, God, I barely have a clue. Okay, there's a massive, massive difference, okay? I'm talking about things that are redemptive, things that are eternal, 
that make Jesus famous, as I said. So here are some lessons we can apply from what we're talking about today, from the nation of Israel. First thing is this. When we're leaving Egypt, we need to leave in Egypt what belongs in Egypt. have to be purposeful about that. need to leave in Egypt what belongs in Egypt. That means I need to identify some things. Some things are obvious, some things I know, some things maybe aren't quite as obvious. Here's how it looks, uh, the way Paul explains it. 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, uh, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Let me reread that and put it in context with what we're talking about. When I was a slave in Egypt, I talked like a slave in Egypt. I thought like a slave in Egypt who had no choices. Everything was selected for them. And I reasoned like a slave in Egypt who couldn't, had no latitude to, to reason things out himself. But when I became a believer in the land of promise, in the land of freedom, I put the ways of Egypt behind me. So that's a New Testament uh, context for what we're talking about, okay? So, you ever struggle in your Christian walk? Sure you do. We all do. Struggle in your Christian, Christian walk? Here's one thing to check. One thing to check would be to open your luggage and see if you've got something left in there that you've smuggled out of Egypt. And that's purposeful. That's pur- We've got a lot of ministries around Radiant uh, to help you do that. We've got counseling, we've got mentoring, we've got uh, our prayer ministry, we've got small groups, you've got connections with other people here. Maybe you know believers who aren't part of Radiant, but they're solid believers, uh, and so there's a lot of ways to help with that, but you have to be purposeful about that, because we normally don't see those things that we smuggled out of Egypt. Second thing is this, is uh, you don't have to wait for circumstances to reveal the incompatibility. The nation of Israel, uh, 11 days after they left Egypt, the circumstances presented themselves to them, and there was this big clash of realities, uh, but you don't have to wait. You can be proactive about having those realities come up. This whole series is based on a parable from Matthew 7. Jesus talks about building on the two foundations, right? Uh, And one of the things you see there, a couple things you see there is that it will rain, and when it rains, the waters will rise. And the other thing you see is that the winds will blow, for sure they'll blow, and when they blow, the Bible says, they'll beat against your house. So it's not, you know, gosh, is it going to rain? Is the wind going to blow? No, it's going to, for sure. And the waters will rise, and the winds will beat against your house, okay? So the question then becomes, what are you building your foundation on? Knowing that these things will happen, what is your foundation built upon? David demonstrates proactivity, uh, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, know my heart. Look at these active words, these proactive words. Search, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts, see, and then lead me. These are invitational. And David's not being theoretical or, you know, real, uh, you know, existential about this, you know. He's saying, man, Lord, where I live here on ground level, teach me, lead me, search me, know me. I need to know the crap that is in my heart, so I can surrender it to you. That's my intention, okay? In other words, show me if there's any Egypt left in me. Show me where Egypt is left in me, things that I haven't uh, discovered yet, or things that I, maybe I once knew, but I've grown complacent about that, and I've just kind of let things slide. Help me be purposeful about this. Here's another way to be proactive. Psalm 119, 
You can finish this sentence, I bet. I've hidden your word, my, your word in my heart. Why? Yes, I might not sin against you. Yeah. That's proactive. That's purposeful. God, I am on purpose uh, getting into your word in a lot of different ways, reading, studying, meditating, conversing with other people about it. And my motivation is so I don't sin against you, so I don't try to drag Egypt into this new life of freedom that I have because of your son, Jesus being purposeful about these things. So these things I'm just talking about, these are not, um, these are not uh, extra credit, okay, for the Christian life. These are not like, here's the Christian life, just like, you know, normal Christian life. And then there's a super Christian life. If you want to be a super Christian, you do the things I just described. This is the Christian life. And there's no normal Christian than a super Christian. It's all normal to always be asking those questions, to be meditating on God's word hiding his word in your heart over and over and over because there's a cost to not doing these things and there's so many more disciplines. There's a cost to not doing them and the cost is pretty high. The cost is really high. I think your worship guide has this as a fill-in. And the cost is this. Even God's kids can die in the desert. Even God's kids can die in the desert. As I read through these uh, scriptures, I notice one thing all these Israelites had in common. All the Israelites who were buried in the desert through all these, these years of wandering. And what they had in common was they're all God's kids. Even God's kids can die in the desert. The cost of disobedience, go back to Exodus 12, uh, God's instructions for the Passover. It says, the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. <laughs> and I read that uh, this past week. And I thought to myself, wow, I've probably read that, I don't know how many, a lot over the years. Uh, and this thought dropped in my head that I never had drop in my head before about this. And I thought, now when is the next time I'm ever going to read that statement in Scripture? All of Israel did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. When we ever see that in Scripture again? So this uh, uh, trip that started out well, leaving Egypt, this 11-day trip, Turned into a 40-year trip. You think about how many people they buried over 40 years. I read an article years ago, a guy just kind of having fun. He uh, did the math about how many would have died uh, in the desert, how many would they would have had buried every day. And I don't remember the number, but it was astronomical, like a lot of funerals every single day for 40 years. Well, this whole series is about uh, foundations for life. What foundation are you building your life upon? And uh, Jesus talks about a wise person who builds on good soil, right? And the foundation consists of two main parts. And we haven't really looked at this so much yet. Uh, the most obvious is the wall. Go to that next slide, if you would. The most obvious part... There you go, thank you. Uh, the most obvious part is the brick wall. Maybe it's brick, maybe it's poured, but... It, the, part of a foundation that we see. Some of it's above ground. Um, have to build on good soil, of course, first of all. But there's a part of the foundation that we really don't think about because when you drive by all these houses, you never see, you never think about, but it's the footing. This wall, block or poured, this wall is built upon a footing that keeps it from, from settling. And so it's very obvious and it's pretty crucial. So the footings precede the wall. Follow me here. The footings precede the wall. Likewise, something precedes um, our belief or our actions. 
and our responses. And that thing is our beliefs, which are, here's the word I mentioned earlier to hang on to, entrenched. The way that you construct a footing is you dig, dig a trench of a certain width all the way around the, the foundation, and then you pour concrete into it. And the footings become entrenched, deeply entrenched, immovable. And so even if the, the wall kind of wobbles, if you didn't construct it right, the footing is not going anywhere, assuming it's put on, on solid soil. Okay? Can you go back one slide for me, please? Yeah. And so the footing's not moving. And if you build the wall correctly, it won't either. But you've got to have both. If you put, uh, start to construct struck the wall just on the, the, ground, the dirt, that's, that's not a good start. So something precedes our words and our actions and our responses, and that's our beliefs. Now, I got this off a construction website, and uh, here's what it says the purpose of footings is. The, the support, purpose of footings are to support, listen to this, to support the foundation and prevent settling. You could preach that, which I think I am. The purpose of footings are to support the foundation and prevent settling. Just think about that in relation to the Christian life. Wow, that's, that's good stuff. In other words, the foundations, now if you go to the next one for me. The beliefs that are most deeply entrenched are the footings on which the foundation of our life is built. And those footings, those beliefs that you and I have might be great things. Hopefully you've got a bunch of those. Some of them might not be so great. Or, you know, we've just gotten used to them, so we'll just go with it. We know it's not great, but whatever. It's what I've got. It's what I'm stuck with, we think. Okay? I'll ask the worship team to, to come and uh, just ask you, what beliefs do you hold dear that are most deeply entrenched? Things that are near and dear to you that nobody could talk you out of, no matter how persuasive they are. Or, on the opposite end of the spectrum, the beliefs that you have, that you hold, that aren't so near and dear, that you dearly love to get rid of. I would love to have these uh, motivations, these responses, uh, these thoughts. I'd love to have them be gone. Get them as far away from me as possible. Okay? Well, we need to go deep. We need to see what the footings are. And so let me close with this, because this whole message is, you know, kind of a bummer, kind of a downer, let's face it. Okay? But the story actually ends on a high note with the nation of Israel. There's good news. I'll just mention it briefly, and then I'll let you take it from there through your small groups, through your Bible study, through your conversations. It says, the Bible says that several million of them left Egypt. Go back one slide for me. Um, the Bible says it set that, that about a million men left Egypt. So if you do the math, men, women, children, you got, you know, some uh, scholars say three to four and a half million people. That's a lot of people leaving uh, any location and moving on to another. And so you've got all that. Um, and it says, God's word says, they all grumbled. They all complained when they got this bad report. All of them. In fact, God's word says that several times. We just want to go back to Egypt, man. At least we had, you know, steady work. And we had food, somewhat. And we knew what to expect, and it was kind of our comfort zone. It stunk. I mean, it wasn't good. We weren't free, but we're used to it. Isn't it always easier to go back to what you're used to than to go into freedom and peace 
in the spirit and man. It's a trip over here in the land of freedom. I like this. Okay? But there were two people, two of those spies, those 12 spies, who came back and they had different reports. There's two of them, Bible mentioned specifically, and one, God's word says something very specific about. Now for our next slide. It says, Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. You know what's fascinating about that? I never read anywhere in Scripture where Caleb was blind. I've never read a verse about, or any, any materials that Caleb was blind. That means he saw the same things that the other Israelites saw. He saw that the land flowed with milk and honey and that there were giants and they had uh, the land fortified and they had siege rent and they were protected. He saw the same crap and his conclusion was, didn't even, looks like they didn't even flinch. Yes, let's go, man, come on. Now, what's the difference between him and several million other people? That's what I'll leave you with uh, to discuss on your own, pray about, think about. Um, but there's something there uh, that's different. If you go to uh, Numbers chapter 14, uh, you'll begin to see a little bit of what that is. And so the short story is um, there's no collision here, no collision of realities. Caleb had a different reality before he ever left Egypt. And he was a slave too, by the way. But he had a different reality. So when worlds collide, and they will, they just will, what will your response be? What are you going to choose to do?